Brought to you by Bank of America, Merrill Lynch. With virtual reality, virtually everything will change. Discover opportunities in a transforming world. B of AML.com slash VR. Merrill Lynch, Pierce, Fenner & Smith, Incorporated. Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen with David Gura. Daily, we bring you insight from the best of economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg. Libby Kentrell, as I said, head of public policy at PIMCO, uh, joins me now. Uh, last week, Infrastructure Week. This week, Workforce Development Week at the White House. They're eager to uh, shift focus onto these economic initiatives. Is that working? Is that making any kind of a, a difference for them getting uh, their agenda back front and center? Yeah. I mean, you know, it's um, they're certainly not for lack of trying. Um, you know, I think there was a lot of focus and fanfare around Infrastructure Week, uh, for example, last week and then this week with the apprenticeship, apprenticeship uh, executive order. But I think, you know, the reality is that this administration is being plagued by you know, the Russia, um, the Russia investigation. And even if there is nothing that is conclusive that comes out of that uh, and the president and, and his administration and campaign are completely exonerated, you know, it just it is yet another headwind um, to getting done a very difficult and ambitious policy agenda under the best of circumstances, honestly. So, um, you know, there, the Congress, as you said, there's making some progress on health care. But certainly, I think at this point, um, right after the election, they would have assumed that they would have been much farther. Has something changed about the level of engagement the administration has with business, with executives in light of perhaps the president's trip to the Middle East and Europe or uh, deciding to withdraw from the, the Paris? agreement. Um, I remember early on in the administration's tenure, it seemed like um, big executives were coming through Washington uh, very regularly. And again, with these two weeks that we've had, um, theme weeks focused on the economy, it doesn't seem like it had the star power, for lack of a better term, that the, the past weeks it had. Yeah, no, I think that's I think that's exactly right. I mean, I think there's, um, there's this business council that the president has put together. And you know, to his credit, he, he sort of started his administration really soliciting a lot of feedback from many different stakeholders, including folks folks in corporate America. Um, it does seem like that um, solicitation has slowed down. And you're right. I mean, I think that there are some companies, and you've already seen some folks even on Twitter and other forms of social media sort of come out against the president um, around, you know, the, around the Paris uh, Treaty and other and other um, more controversial items. So yes, I mean, I think that's it's uh, sort of anecdotal, but you have seen a, a slowing down of engagement from, from corporate America. With that said, I think folks are still still hopeful that we will see some progress on deregulation, that we will see some form of fiscal stimulus, tax reform, infrastructure, though, as you know, we both know, you know, every day is important. And, um, and the, 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 the legislative calendar is incredibly tight and not in the favor of getting these ambitious things done. You know, it strikes me, you mentioned regulation, when you look at all this administration is trying to do, it is on regulation that we've gotten the most 
clarity. Of course, we had the, the House voting on this Financial Choice Act a few days ago, passing the House, uh, apparently dead on arrival yes. uh, in the Senate. <laughs> but we, we did get this 150-page document from the Treasury mm-hmm. Department on regulation uh, with instruction to regulatory agencies to reevaluate uh, rules that are in place uh, now. When you compare that, say, to the principles for tax reform, yeah. there is more detail, uh, and it seems likely that that yeah. might lead to some change. Yeah, for sure. And, um, you know, we've we've been actually evaluating in our investment committee and other places in PIMCO you know, that report in detail. And it was smart because that report, the bulk of the recommendations are things that the administration can do without Congress, um, can do through the regulatory channels. But, and a big but here, um, anyone is familiar with Washington, mm-hmm. especially on the regulatory side, these things take a long time. Um, they have to go through the Administrative Procedures Act, uh, notice uh, for public comment, uh, you know, it's just a long way of saying it, it will take time. So will we see some regulatory softening? We are expecting that you will, but probably not until the later part of 2018 or 2019. How do you assess the, the level of engagement the, the White House has with um, Republicans and Democrats on, on Capitol Hill uh, right now? Some were invited to the White House earlier this week. It seems like the president is making an attempt to have uh, overtures to members of Congress to, to keep them involved in all of this. How much do they want the White House involved when it comes to tax reform or when it comes to health care reform? Do they want it to be a a hand-in-glove relationship? Do they want to work closely with the White House? Yeah, I mean, I think they do. um, But, uh, you know, at least at the sort of the beginning days of the administration, I think there was a lot of hope that, you know, unlike maybe the Obama administration, who did not necessarily have great relationships on the Hill on both sides of the aisle, that this would be sort of a new paradigm, um, again, on both sides of the aisle, that Mm. this would maybe be there'd be some more bipartisanship, bipartisan comedy uh, ushered in by the Trump administration. Unfortunately, mm. we haven't seen that. Um, and again, this has to do with the approval rating among of Trump among Democrats. I mean, it's around 7% according to the last Gallup poll. And as a result, there is no political incentive yeah. for Democrats mm. to negotiate with the administration. Good morning, everyone. Bloomberg Surveillance. Libby Cantrell with us. It's a really, you know, it's sort of like, David, it's a Friday where it's like briefing Friday. Mm-hmm. I feel like I need to read all weekend just to keep up with uh, things. It's good to have Libby Cantrell with PIMCO uh, with us. I, I, I look here, Libby, and I have to go back to a guy. Who, I believe he darkened the door at your shop a few years ago. A guy named El Arian. I think he took some <laughs> courses at Cambridge a while back. Uh, uh, Dr. El Arian believes in the unknown unknowns. That's a really good concept for your Washington. Yes. What's your unknown unknown? Yeah. <laughs> within all that we're being confronted with. Right. I think there's only, the only certainty is uncertainty at this point. I mean, there, you know, every day, as we were talking about before, I mean, the, the news cycle is just um, so replete with uh, new developments that on their own would be major stories. Um, I think people are becoming a little bit desensitized. I, you know, I do think that the, the Russia story, again, we don't have a, a view on that, on yeah. how that will turn out, but that will continue to plague yeah, the president. You nailed it. You know, but the issue here is Robert Mueller is not going to be desensitized. That's no. the issue. All of us are. But David Gura, help me here. You're the Washington Axe as well. I can't believe Mr. Mueller is going to be desensitized. No, and my sense of that investigation is it's in its very early stages. And so in terms of unknown unknowns, I think a, a huge X factor, Tom, is just how long this is going to take. And, and, oh. and uh, 
So then we could go to the X Files. Yeah. Yeah. The X Files. Well, and I think I think <laughs> if you yeah. if you see you know any leaks, and to your point, if this thing draw is is sort of longer dated yeah. and is into 2018, I mean it is going to be. Um, it's so your question about engaging with the administration in terms of members of Congress, it then becomes politically more difficult for Republicans to mm. really um, take up the mantle for the administration. And I think you're already seeing some distancing from Republican members, but at this point. They want to see things get done, and and um, for for now, it does seem that aligning themselves with the administration still works to their advantage. Although I don't know how long that will last. I mentioned this uh, congressional baseball game glancingly at the the top of the show, but a, a line stood out to me from some remarks the president made yesterday. He said, uh, "Steve Scalise, the injured um, majority whip." Uh, in his own way, may have brought some unity to our long-divided country. I have a feeling that Steve made a great sacrifice, but there could be some unity being brought to our country. Let's hope so. Uh, how optimistic are you of that? We we, we have seen uh, in these days since that terrible incident, uh, Republicans, Democrats sitting together, doing things together. Of course, an interview in the middle of that game last night with House Speaker Paul Ryan and uh, Minority Leader Nancy Pelosi. Are you optimistic it's going to lead to, to more comedy, as you mentioned yeah. a few moments ago? Yeah, I, I hope, and I think most Americans hope so. I think, you know, a big difference between the Washington of today, um, even versus the Washington of, of 10 to 15 years ago, is that it's become political and personal. There are always political divisions. There's always some partisanship. But at the end of the day, it wasn't necessarily personal among members because they already had a foundation, a relationship. They would go out to dinner together. Their staffs knew each other. I think that has change with sort of the toxicity of the politics, and it's become much more personal. So as a result, these folks don't necessarily have as good relationships as I think they used to, and so they don't really have a foundation for a negotiation. Um, so hopefully this type of, you know, it's tragic uh, event that could have a silver lining. Right. I'm just not necessarily optimistic. I want to come back and read X Healthcare as well. We talked about it earlier today with Libby Cantrell, and it's so urgent here and immediate that we should do that. Uh, one more time. Libby Cantrell is with PIMCO. I guess I want to talk about something non-inflammatory like healthcare, <laughs> except uh, let's start with a basic why. Why is it so secret in the Senate? Mm -hmm. I, I don't understand. Yeah. What, what is it? Two people know about it, and it's, it's like in <laughs> Raiders of the Lost Ark. Yeah. It's in the Covenant, yeah. eight stories down in the Pentagon. Well, I mean, and, and as we were talking about a little bit earlier, this this differs quite a bit from the Obamacare process in which there were, you know, 100 hearings in the Senate, almost 90 hearings in the House. Um, it was, you know, maybe arguably too public in that uh, everybody had a point of view. I think Mitch McConnell, as we were talking about before, is trying to thread the needle here. And it is a um, it is a small needle and a small hole because uh, he is trying to pass a bill that is fundamentally unpopular with the American public. Um, less than 20 percent approve of the bill. Uh, but at the same time, he feels like if he doesn't, then they are not fulfilling an important campaign promise. So this is really difficult politics here. Uh, I think that the, the conventional wisdom at this point is that Senator McConnell will may just bring up the bill regardless if he has the votes or not, just to get some resolution on this. And we can talk about this in a little bit, but the, the sequencing of health care or, or, the, or the passage of health care predicates or the sequencing of these other things like the budget resolution, like tax reform. So they need to dispose of health care one way or the other in the next few months, or then their whole agenda could potentially be hijacked. I mean, the issue here is the Venn diagram of it all, right? And I guess the Capitol is nothing but a giant Venn diagram of the House on one side, the Senate on the other, they meet in the, the middle. Uh, when it comes to health care, Senate is starting from scratch on on its own 
bill, what's the likelihood that that's going to resemble in any form what the House has put forward and that the House is going to be willing to accept whatever the yeah. Senate comes up well, with? Well, and like like the House that has, in terms of the Republican caucus, you know, the House has very conservative members, has very more moderate members. The Senate has the same dynamic. Uh, so I think it just depends on, you know, kind of whose fingerprints are on that bill. Um, the, the hard thing, and again, another kind of political headwind here is what can pass the Senate may not be able to pass the House. However, I think if the Senate is able to get a bill out uh, with, you know, 50 of 52 votes, right, this is going to be a partisan uh, vote, 52 Republicans in the Senate. So 50 of 52, 96 percent you have to get um, of your caucus on board. If they can get that out, you know, my sort of presumption is that the House will feel like they have to pass it just to, again, get get this off their, off their agenda. There are um, routines to Washington. Something that used to drive me crazy about it was how regularly the, the story was the same. And that's especially <laughs> true when it comes to the debt ceiling or the yeah. debt uh, limit. It would come up again and again and again, and the debate, the conversation would be the same each time. What do you tie to it, if anything? Uh, is this something that should be raised, et cetera, et cetera? We're there again. What are we hearing from this administration about that? And I say we're there again. We really don't know when the actual date is uh, that we're going to be up against that ceiling. Yeah, exactly. Um, so that's sort of the the X date, the unknown date where Treasury exhausts its uh, extraordinary efforts in terms of um, you know, the, the debt ceiling limit. Just take a step back. It actually, the deadline was March 15th, but then Treasury has been using extraordinary measures to delay that. Uh, I, you know, there is some thinking that it could be as early as August, although uh, Secretary Secretary Mnuchin was on the House testifying, saying that it probably was September. I think that, you know, the big question here is what their strategy is mm-hmm. going to be. And and to your point, there hasn't been a coherent strategy, at least as of yet. Secretary Mnuchin wants a clean debt ceiling bill. Um, McMulvaney, OMB director, has said that he wants to have some provisions in terms of s- reducing spending. The problem with that is no Democrat will vote for it, and you need Democrats in order to lift the debt ceiling. I will just add to that that the debt ceiling did not used to be as much of an issue. Um, it was a hard vote for members to take. But before 2011, this idea of adding things to it was really unpopular. Um, and uh, and so, you know, it's only really become a big issue over the last few years. But to your point, it could potentially be a big issue from the market's perspective. Given the, the compression of the, the congressional calendar that you mentioned a few minutes ago, do you think it's likely we're going to see changes to the, the August recess? I know that lawmakers are oh, listen really to love, you. That, love that recess. <laughs> mean, but know, uh, there's Col- a lot to Colin get done. The twins, to get done. Take a note. Mr. Gurr has just discovered <laughs> the politicians only work 30 days <laughs> a year. <laughs> Well, I hope they take August recess because I want to take some vacation during August. But uh, yeah, so, you know, the August recess is sacrosanct mm-hmm. among uh, members of Congress. And I think, you know, and, and I will I'll defend members here a little bit. And everyone thinks that they're on the beach. They really are going back to their districts. And, you know, they, of course, they take some vacation with their families, but they really are going back to their districts you, you, and, and meeting the with their constituents. Well, I did work for a member of Congress. <laughs> no. so I, um, but, I, but I saw this. I mean, I witnessed this live that there were events in the, in the district. You know, regardless of what they're True. doing, yeah. they are. I, it is sacrosanct. Yeah. So I think under only extraordinary yeah. circumstances, would extreme duress. Yeah. I, I just, I mean, it goes and it goes back, of course, to when it used to be by horseback and, and then by yeah, train, course, where yes, exactly. you had to go back and see people. Yeah. This has been great, Libby Carantel. Very generous of you to be with us this morning with Pimco, David Gura, and Tom Keen. Thrilled you're with us worldwide, coast to coast. This is Bloomberg. Let's get to our guest. 
Um, and and he, he knows very much about the CFA. He is a CFA, as I am. Kang Singh joins us with State Street Global Advisors with a, a particular look from Singapore on Southeast Asia and, of course, all of Asia and particularly on his Malaysia as well. Kang, wonderful to speak to you this morning. Tell us the Southeast Asia policy towards China, not only Singapore and Malaysia, but as a, a region, as a sphere, what is their relationship with China? I, I would say that the relationship is, uh, is a bit mixed. I think on, on the geopolitical side, as you're probably aware, there's uh, always this South China Sea tension thing going on. So, you know, while they're trying to defend, you know, their sovereignty rights, uh, you know, they could also be careful uh, not to really antagonize China. But when it comes to the economic front, um, all the Southeast Asian countries certainly would welcome uh, the Chinese uh, participation. And as you know, the, the trade flows within ASEAN as well as China is also very important. So, so I would say that, you know, from that perspective, they kind of view China as, uh, as, as, a, as a big brother um, that is going to be beneficial for economic terms, but also equally uh, cautious when it comes to the uh, the kind of geopolitical uh, sphere. Yeah, we, we, we talk about the, the One Belt, One Road initiative uh, in geopolitical terms uh, largely, but what, what could it mean economically for the countries uh, that stand to benefit or get resources from this, uh, this Chinese-backed initiative? I think first that comes to mind would be on the infrastructure side. Um, you know, on the infrastructure side, it could be, you know, in some cases would be port, it could be rail uh, roads, constructions, as well as uh, the financing that comes to it. So I think in some of the areas like the construction sectors, they could also benefit along the way. So I think that's going to create a, a, a second round effect for the economic growth. Let me ask you a bit about the, the Bank of Japan. As I mentioned, we got a rate decision from the BOJ uh, just a few uh, hours ago, uh, capping off a, a week with a lot of central bank uh, activity. Here in the U.S., we got more clarity, got some semblance of a roadmap for how the Fed is going to begin to unwind its, uh, its, its balance sheet. How much eagerness is there from you and others to get more clarity on tapering from the BOJ at this point? I think at this point, BOJ is playing a, a very careful uh, game here, uh, close, uh, you know, choosing to keep the cards close to their chest. Um, clearly, um, they are continuing to support the bond buying program. Uh, there's no sign that it's going to ease at this, at this stage. But equally, they are fully aware of the fact that as the balance sheet continues to build at the central bank, at some point, they will need to wind down. At this point, I don't think they are uh, ready to do anything yet. So at this point, I don't think they want to send a very clear signal to the market when that timeline comes. But I think they want to just remain very flexible and to allow them more time to assess what are the options they have. What is the weapon of currency across Asia right now? We parse on surveillance, Asia DXY, that Asian basket, ex-Japan, or we look at renminbi, we look at yen. Is currency a weapon for the nations of Asia right now? I think it can be both a, a two-edged uh, sword, so to speak. Now, at this point in time, obviously, the um, you know at the beginning of the year, we were looking for a strong dollar, which it did happen. But subsequently, now we are seeing a bit of a softer dollar. So from that standpoint, you know, generally the Asian countries would look for a, a reasonably, reasonably uh, kind of weak currencies to help to support the exports, but they do not want it to be too weak that would create any sense of fear among investors that would leave the countries from the capital well, account perspective. 
So I think it's kind of like a double-edged sword that they could do play it very carefully, mm. and I don't think they want to really play too hard at All this right. point. Thank you so much, King Seeing with us. He's with State Street Global Advisors uh, out of Singapore uh, with uh, great perspective. We don't do that enough, David. We don't do Southeast Asia enough. Brought to you by Bank of America, Merrill Lynch. With virtual reality, virtually everything will change. Discover opportunities in a transforming world. B of slash VR. Merrill Lynch, Pierce, Fenner & Smith, Incorporated. What I would suggest, David, is our next guest is the absolute personification of application of math skills. The only equivalent in the sphere that we have of government tax analysis, Gene Sterling, uh, maybe at, at legendary at the Urban Institute, and James Perturba, his colleague long ago at MIT. This, this is a wonderful guy. Yeah, absolutely. Donald Marin joins us now. He's a director of economic policy initiatives at uh, the Urban Institute in Washington, D.C., former acting director of the Congressional Budget Office, former deputy director of the Council of Economic Advisors uh, at the White House. He joins us now on our phone lines. Don Marin, great to speak with you, you once again. And let's start with taxes, if we could. Uh, you, for so long, the head of the, uh, the joint Urban Brookings Tax Policy uh, Center. We've heard a lot about the, uh, the border-adjusted tax, the so-called border-adjusted tax. It was not something that was included on that uh, list of principles the White House handed out uh, at a briefing now a couple of months uh, ago. There was a sense that maybe the White House might come around uh, to it. What's, what's your sense of uh, the longevity of, the vitality of the border-adjusted tax in Washington, D.C. today? Uh, I think it's going to be much more vital in the analyst community than in the political community. Uh, the, the bat, as we now call it, uh, doesn't seem to have gotten the political traction necessary to go forward. We, we saw uh, House Ways and Means Committee Chairman uh, Kevin Brady the other day beginning to talk about, well, maybe you can phase it in over time, things like that. Uh, and i gotta, I got to say, I, I view that as sort of a sign of its impending demise how, politically. Yeah, how integral is it? To, when, you, when you look at the, the, the Ryan Brady blueprint, which I think is the, the, the fullest document we have, the fullest proposal we have for tax reform uh, from the Republican uh, side, how essential is the inclusion of a bat of a border-adjusted tax? Well, you should, you should think about, you know, the, the folks in the House want to do revenue-neutral tax reform, so fundamental tax reform without changing how much money comes in. And so that's an exercise in giving people ice cream and getting them to eat spinach. And we mostly talk about the ice cream, right, you know, cutting the corporate rate, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, but you need some spinach in there, some tax, some revenue increases to offset that. And the bat has been that way of doing it. Uh, over 10 years in round numbers, the bat was expected to bring in around a trillion dollars. Uh, that's a lot of money, even in Washington. And it was really essential to the goal of revenue neutrality. If, if the bat goes away, uh, you're left with the question of, well, where does the money come from? Or do we give up on revenue-neutral tax reform and just embrace a big tax cut? Tom, I just want to tell you, in Park Slope now you can get asparagus gelato. So maybe the days of fu- the future of spinach ice cream is not that not that far away. Donald uh, Merrin, let me uh, ask folks, you about Folks, I'm sorry. You know, just, <laughs> John and I do a number two value meal in a, in a, from McDonald's here just to keep David. Yeah, you know, raising our culinary <laughs> asparagus. You're not feeding uh, your kids this, asparagus are you? Asparagus gelato. We, we had a sample. Daddy, can we go I for saw, ice cream? She, she ended up getting chocolate last week. We were there. Never but, seen uh, this in the Merrin household. That's very true. Donald Merrin, you mentioned revenue neutrality. Is this something that the White House uh, has embraced. In other words, it's a component part of that Ryan uh, Brady blueprint. Is, is it something the White House says it wants to see as well? 
So the White House says many things. Uh, I think is the fair statement. Uh, sometimes the White House talks about revenue neutral tax reform, you know, with some of that coming in unspecified asterisk ways from economic growth. Uh, sometimes the president will tweet that, you know, he wants to do the biggest tax cut in American history. Uh, if you look at their budget, it was really hard to see how you get all the numbers to add up to revenue neutral tax reform. Uh, and so, I guess the answer is yes. Occasionally they talk about doing revenue neutral tax reform, but an awful lot of the signals you see are more tax cut than reform. Yeah, I'm, re- I'm recalling an interview that our colleagues Margaret Talib and Jennifer Jacobs did with the president uh, a few weeks back. Uh, one of the things they asked him about was whether he would consider uh, raising the gas tax, and he said, in fact, he was, which was going against uh, some orthodoxy there. When, when you look at alternatives to the bad or other ways to, to, to pay for uh, tax reform or tax cuts, what are they? And, and do you think that Republicans are approaching them with, uh, with real seriousness? So next on the list uh, is rolling back, you know, more controversial tax provisions like rolling back deductibility of interest for business. Uh, if you were aggressive in doing that, you could raise around a trillion dollars. Uh, but that, again, is something that, of course, companies that rely on a lot of debt to finance their business have noticed that, have organized against it, and you've seen that that would, that would face a lot of political challenges on the Hill. Uh, you could try to cut back spending as a way to offset the tax, uh, the tax cuts. We saw a few members of Congress float that in recent weeks. Uh, I think politically that's, a, that's going to be a dead end. You can't, you know, cut, you know, food stamps or whatever in order to, to finance tax cuts, but that's out there. Uh, I periodically go to secret meetings around Washington where uh, the, the top, you know, at least the ones I'm invited to tend to all be about carbon tax. Uh-huh. Uh, that sort of, you know, if you're, if you, if you believe that, you know, climate change is a problem that we need to respond to, we're seeing some, seeing some rollback in regulations, but, uh, you know, there's kind of a two birds, one stone thing you could do with a carbon tax is help reduce carbon emissions, uh, combat mm-hmm. climate change, and at the same time, you know, a reasonable carbon tax could easily bring in a trillion or more over the next decade, and that, that's money that could definitely, uh, make, make doing, uh, tax reform easier. Obviously, the political viability of the carbon tax in the current environment is very low, not zero, but very low. But So you hear people talk about that. Uh, you hear people talk about the magic of dynamic scoring and whether that means you can have you know, tax cuts that pay for themselves. Uh, happily, we have professional agencies, the Joint Committee on Taxation and the Congressional Budget Office, that you know, have the right approach to doing dynamic scoring, which gives you a little bit of an effect, but nowhere near a tax cuts pay for themselves uh, kind of result. Uh, and then increasingly in recent weeks, we've seen more discussion of not paying for tax cuts or, uh, you know, doing things like using a really long budget window and having temporary tax cuts that last, you know, for 15 years uh, and then, you know, be revenue neutral beyond that, which is kind of gimmickry. Can you, can you get tax reform without it being bipartisan? Uh, in other words, you, you, Tom was talking a few minutes ago with Libby Kentrill about uh, the secrecy surrounding the negotiations over a health care bill uh, in the Senate. Uh, it seems like – I won't even say that things are on, on parallel tracks. It seems like Republicans are doing the bulk of the writing of this legislation and there isn't much Democratic uh, involvement. Can you have full tax reform, comprehensive tax reform, without the, the involvement of both parties? So I, could, I guess there are two questions there. The first is whether you could pass tax reform, and the answer is yes. You know, we have this budget procedure known as reconciliation that uh, avoids filibusters in the Senate. And so if you could literally get, you know – 
enough Republicans in the House and, you know, at least 50 Republicans in the Senate on board for something that the president was willing to sign. Uh, in principle, you could do a tax reform as long as it satisfies the requirements of reconciliation. Uh, and one of those is that it has to be uh, not increase the deficit beyond the budget window. And then that leads to this whole discussion about, well, we usually use a 10-year budget window, but if you made yeah. it longer, maybe you could have temporary yeah. thing. Um, but, but the second piece is that um, it's hard to see how you have a permanent, persistent tax reform if you do it in a right. wholly partisan manner. Um, you know, if your goal is to let's move us to a tax system that's going to guide us for decades into the future, uh, you know, you'd want that to be bipartisan and have buy-in oh. from both sides. And that's that's not where we are at the moment. It, very quickly here, if you and I were stuck at Reagan Airport on a Friday afternoon because of a thunderstorm <laughs> and hair, Don Marin, are, are my taxes going to go up? Yeah. Eventually, okay. you know, not, not, in the, not, in, not in this round. Is, is he going to die? <laughs> John, that was the Ph.D. from the Massachusetts Institute of Technology. Yeah. The, the perturbatot in that. Yeah, they're going to go up. We're going to continue with Don uh, Marin. David, uh, uh, it's, it's great to get these guys. What a week it's been. Yeah. I mean, Richard Clarida. Are you, have you recovered from our interview with Professor Clarida? You know, I was at the printer. I've got like uh, hundreds of pages printed out of the uh, old Marin, sorry, of the old, uh, old Clarida tree. The 1999 one. So yeah, I put it out on Twitter. Out for the weekend. I know there'll be a quiz on, the on only, Monday or Tuesday. The, the only one that got the math in the 1999 paper was Don Marin. <laughs> <laughs> Let me turn to the budget, if I could, Donald Marin. Uh, we have a budget proposal from the White House on the heels of a uh, list of principles and uh, later a skinny budget. Now we've got the, the full thing. Where do we go from here? The, the the members of both parties on Capitol Hill have expressed uh, uh, muted enthusiasm, let's, let's say, for the document that the White House uh, has put forward. Where are we in the budget process? Yeah, so, yeah, muted enthusiasm was probably generous to the, to the reaction. Uh, you know, uh, right, not a lot of support for the president's budget overall up on the Hill. Uh, you know, so... Obviously, the big driving thing is, A, we need to figure out how we're going to fund the government by September. Right, end of September, we have the usual need to, to finance things for the next year. And so we're going to have this debate about defense spending, domestic spending. Uh, president wants to increase defense spending and cut domestic spending uh, at levels, neither of which are politically viable. But so Congress is going to be trying to work forward to, to, to something that's doable and remains to be seen whether that's possible. Um, and then separately, you know, going back to the tax reform discussion, uh, if you want to do tax reform in a partisan way, uh, you need to get this structure known as reconciliation in place. And to get reconciliation in place, you have to pass a budget. Uh, and so there's a lot of pressure on, on the House and the Senate uh, Republicans to come up with a budget that will outline specifically what the parameters are of what an allowable tax reform would look like. And tax reform really can't go forward uh, unless they're able to do that. Donald Mayor, we'll have a guest on from the, the foreign policy world and talk about the, uh, the, the inchoate or newly formed uh, Trump doctrine. When it comes to uh, Trump's attitude toward the budget, can you, can you draw some sense of direction from the proposal th that we saw? Was this a Donald Trump budget or a Mick Mulvaney budget? So the couple things I'd say about the budget. Uh, so the first is uh, this administration isn't as constrained as recent ones by trying to have a budget that adds up. 
there's a giant asterisk in the middle of this budget for $2 trillion over the next 10 years, which is an enormous amount of money. Uh, it's very difficult to see how you make all the pieces fit together. And we've seen since the budget came out a lot of confusion and commentary out of different parts of the administration about exactly what they want to do. So, you know, this is not like an Obama or Bush or Clinton budget where there was a lot of effort to put together something that was integral and whole and, you know, maybe had a little hand-waving, but nothing on the scale of what we see here. Uh, you know, it has enormous economic growth assumptions that are very hard to justify given our, given our uh, kind of, you know, aging population and uh, slowing labor force growth. So, First thing is kind of big picture. It doesn't all add up, and that seems to be, from their point of view, I think a feature rather than than a bug. Uh, second, clearly this focus on shifting uh, discretionary spending towards defense and away from uh, domestic programs uh, and domestic operations of agencies, uh, and clearly at levels that are beyond what's going to be politically viable. Uh, obviously, hope that various proposals will uh, will encourage economic growth, but again, assumptions about success on that front that seem wildly optimistic. Help me with it with a phrase I've heard here over these last few weeks. That is the double count. Uh, people saying that within this budget proposal is a, a a double count. What does it mean, and why is it so problematic? Sure. So that's the $2 trillion I mentioned, that there, there's a line item in the budget, which is $2 trillion of uh, mostly revenue, a little bit spending in decreases, but mostly incoming revenue, that comes from the stronger economic growth assumptions they have, which I should note are very, very strong. Uh, they're, they're assuming economic growth over the next 10 years about one percentage point higher per year than the Congressional Budget Office. You know, that's a difference bigger than any we've seen uh, in, in at least, I don't know, 20, 25 years. Uh, and They've talked about doing revenue-neutral tax reform, and they talked originally about some of that revenue neutrality coming from economic growth. So that, in principle, would be included in their tax reform proposal. But if you look in the budget, they, they claim that they're going to have tax reform that's revenue-neutral, and then they have this separate line item for, for the benefits of economic growth. And so the double counting is, well, can you have revenue-neutral tax reform and have this $2 trillion of benefit from economic growth? A little unclear what the administration has been saying, but they seem to have pivoted now to saying that they're going to have tax reform that pays for itself, you know, that is revenue neutral um, without including economic growth. But it's very unclear. I, you know, it's a highly unusual document from that perspective. Donald, as I mentioned, you were the, the, the acting head of the Congressional Budget Office for some time, and uh, I was struck by the comments from Mick Mulvaney, the head of the Office of Management and Budget, a few weeks ago, commenting on the role of that office. Uh, essentially, he said that it is less relevant than it was, and um, you know, maybe it's, it's, it's time has passed. Shed some light for us, if you would, on the role that it has played and indeed does play in policymaking uh, in Washington and how extraordinary, I think uh, might be the right word it was, uh, the way that the House health care bill was passed without going to the CBO uh, first. That is out of custom, let's say. Sure. Uh, and so... You know, if you jet back 45 years ago and uh, the Watergate scandal, which I believe, if I have my dates right, actually started today, uh, 45 years ago, uh, a backdrop for that was not just the, the criminal activities and concerns about the Nixon administration, but also there was great budget concerns about how he handled budget policy relative to Congress. And so Congress stepped up and said, you know what, we, the Congress, are going to exercise more control, more, more discipline over how uh, the government allocates its money, raises its money, and does its budget. And as part of that, it said, you know what, to help us do that, Congress needs an office, the Congressional Budget Office, that is going to be our chief source of uh, estimates and numbers uh, about the budget implications of policy. 
And over the last 45, you know, 40 years, 40-plus years, uh, CBO has developed into a very trusted, nonpartisan source of objective analysis of the budget implications of policy. It's been very useful to policymakers to understand the implications of ideas they've been considering. And it's been incredibly useful in disciplining uh, the Office of Management and Budget, right, the executive branch, uh, that, you know, they know that if they put out estimates for something, uh, the folks at CBO are going to put out estimates, too. And if there's too wide, you know, too wide a gap there, people are going to look at scans at what, uh, what the executive branch is suggesting. And so CBO has played this great role of both informing Congress about the budget implications of policy ideas and legislation and also of disciplining the larger process so that uh, people in the White House can't be too outlandish in their claims about the, the budget benefits of the policies they propose. How much can, 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 con- can Congress, can lawmakers focus on, on the budget as they're up against this funding deadline, the September 30th funding deadline? In other words, do they, do they have to prioritize that over the budget? Can they work on two things uh, in tandem? Uh, I was struck, again, I lived in Washington for some time when I left. It seemed like we were in the era of the continuing uh, resolution, uh, that there were these sort of stopgap funding bills that had become uh, the norm. Given that, how radical a departure would it be to return to regular order to get a, a, you know, a budget in place as they used to get them in place uh, for many, 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 many decades? Yes, yeah, so that would be a big departure, right? As you say, we've been in continuing resolution land for quite a while now. Uh, and, you know, and even that's sometimes hard, right? So, you know, when September comes around, we may again be at least having rhetorically a government shutdown discussion uh, as uh, folks work toward that deadline. You know, you can imagine that there's some parts of the budget where they're going to be able to do appropriations. Uh, military construction is one that often has a lot of support, uh, maybe some other pockets. Uh, but, you know, Clearly, we're still going to be having discussions about how to spend money well beyond the the September deadline. I'm sure at least parts of things are going to be done under a continuing resolution. Uh, But, you know, step one is they need to pass a budget, and the budget would really have two broad pieces of information in it. First, it would have the the instructions, the reconciliation instructions that can guide the tax reform uh, debate. And then second, it should have the top-level spending numbers for the, uh, for, you know, the various agencies and activities of the federal government that could then uh, spark the conversation about how exactly we're going to allocate that spending. So a lot of pressure on them to get a budget in place if they want to make any progress on tax reform and if they want to have a coherent uh, funding the government discussion. But yeah, don't, don't expect everything to be done by September 30th. Donald Marin, great to speak with you this morning. Really appreciate uh, the time. That's Donald Marin. He is uh, the director of the Economic Policy Initiatives at the Urban Institute think tank uh, in Washington, D.C. David Gura here in New York. This is Bloomberg Surveillance on Bloomberg Radio. And let's uh, pick things up right where we left. And they're talking about uh, housing with one Lindsay Piegza. She's the chief economist at Stiefel joining us today. Lindsay, great to talk to you. Uh, as always, Vinny there detailing the week. Housing starts numbers this morning. Let's let's go broad first. When you look at the housing market, the housing economy here in the U.S. right now, how does it look? Well, if, if we look at housing starts and housing permits, you can clearly see a declining trend. This is not a one-off month of weakness, but we've actually seen now three consecutive months of waning activity in terms of new construction coming online. And in fact, we've now dragged that annual pace of new construction down into net negative territory. So it doesn't necessarily bode well for the idea that the Fed has really been touting that the U.S. economy is on the track to gain momentum 
in some of these key sectors as we look to the end of the second quarter and beyond into the second uh, half of the year. Yeah, building permits down 4.9%, well below what was uh, what was expected. Fold this into the greater economy. You were beginning to do that there uh, in your answer to the first question, but uh, how, how important is housing to the overall health of the U.S. economy here in June of 2017? Well, housing is a very key contributor. It's not necessarily the large driver of economic activity as it was prior to the Great Recession. Of course, it's also no longer the large net drag on economic activity as it was in the aftermath of the Great Recession. But housing has been a consistent positive driver of top-line growth, and it appears to be losing a significant amount of momentum. So when we take that out of the equation, if housing is not contributing to top-line growth, what are we left with? Well, the consumer. The consumer, as we saw earlier this week, very disappointing retail sales numbers. The consumer is still under pressure. Business investment is still very soft. Domestic manufacturing is still under pressure amid a very stagnant global economy and strong U.S. dollars. So there's very few green shoots, if you will, that we can hang our hat on to say that the U.S. economy is going to be gaining improvement or gaining momentum from this current very moderate pace. Lindsay Piazza, how much attention do you pay to the soft data? We've been focused on the divide, uh, that sort of yawning divide between the soft data and the hard data over these last few months. Um, what, what role does that play for you? Do the, do, the, do the soft data play for you as you assess the health of the U.S. economy? Well, if you had asked me a few years ago, I would have said it plays a much larger role. But what we see now is when we look at the soft data, uh, and for listeners, that meaning the survey data, asking consumers, asking businesses how they feel, what their plans are in terms of spending and investing, we have seen a growing divergence over what people say and what people do in more recent times. And so asking consumers, how do you feel about your financial footing, they seem much more upbeat. But then when we actually look at what their spending patterns are, we see them continuing to curtail what they're purchasing on a month-to-month basis. So I, I would expect that growing divide to remain for quite some time and not necessarily translate into much stronger consumption or investment figures, despite the improvement in the soft data as of late. And we'll get some figures from the University of Michigan on sentiment a little later this morning at 10 o'clock at Wall Street time. Let me pivot here to ask you about what we heard from the, the Federal Reserve this week from Fed Chair Janet Yellen and her colleagues on the Federal Open Market Committee. I wonder how their sense of the U.S. economy squares with yours. In other words, do you share their view of the U.S. economy? Well, it's very clear that Fed officials are acknowledging the recent soft data, particularly on the inflation side, but they did seem to sort of override that with their general sense of optimism that the economy is on relatively moderate footing and their expectation that the economy will continue to gain momentum. So it was as if the Federal Reserve was watching, excuse me, walking this very thin line between recognizing the more dismal reality and continuing to tout their more positive expectations to support their more aggressive pathway for additional rate increases in the remaining six months of the year. Now, of course, if the data continues to disappoint, I do suspect that the Fed will be forced to more realistically look at the economy and par back some of their expectations as well as their expectations for additional rate increases. Yeah, I want to ask you quickly. We'll come back with you in just a moment, but in the 30 seconds we have left here before going to, to break, how much of this has to do with momentum? In other words, the, the Fed has begun to normalize and it wants to continue to normalize just because of that. It's, it, it, it's on a particular path. 
Oh, absolutely. The Fed doesn't want to look as if they made a mistake early on, and now they have to uh, arrest this pathway to normalization. So from the Fed's point of view, any sign of moderation, not solid, not strength, but moderation is good enough at this point to continue down the pathway to higher rates. Lindsay, we were talking a bit about the transitory, the excuse excuse of transitoriness from uh, the Federal Reserve Chairwoman Janet Yellen. Uh, She outlined that in her uh, comments following the FOMC announcement on Wednesday after afternoon. What are the the consequences if the Fed were to get this wrong? In other words, if what they see as transitory isn't? Well, the concern is that they continue to raise rates and remove accommodative support for the economy at a time when we're actually losing momentum. So raising rates too fast and actually cooling what little activity levels that we're seeing in the U.S. economy at this point. So essentially uh, squashing the recovery, the very delicate recovery that we're still seeing. Now, we're still, of course, talking about very historically low rates, so I don't think we're at a level of concern at this point. But going forward, if the Fed were to follow through with their more aggressive pathway, meaning an additional two rate increases by the end of the year, three or four rate increases within the bounds of 2018, that could be enough to, again, restrain the very modest levels of growth that we're seeing in the U.S. economy and force us into either a non-accelerating pathway or worse, into recession. Lindsay, we were talking with Matt Toms of uh, Avoya, head of fixed income at Voya, just a few moments ago. I asked him what his expectation was for when the Fed is going to begin to unwind the, the balance sheet. We got uh, some clarity on the path forward from the Fed this week. We didn't get a specific uh, date. What's your sense of when it'll begin and how long this process is going to take? Well, certainly uh, at this week's meeting, we did get some welcome details surrounding the process, surrounding the expectations in terms of caps being implemented and very gradually stepping up those caps. But you're right, we didn't get any specific commitment to a timeline of when this process is set to begin. Now, we did see a broad generality talking about if the economy evolves as expected. Most committee members anticipated that this would begin by the end of the year, but that really was very squishy language. And if the economy does continue to show weakness, as we expect, I think it's very likely that we push out balance sheet normalization into 2018 or beyond. Just uh, is, is your ex- expectation here we're going to get even more detail uh, on this going forward? I, I gather it was somewhat of a surprise what we did learn on Wednesday when it comes to unwinding the, the balance sheet. Is there more that you would like to know that you expect we will hear uh, from Janet Yellen and her colleagues before this begins to go into effect? Well, certainly the market wants the Fed to be as transparent as possible. Uh, we certainly want to understand exactly the process that they're going to be putting in place to avoid any sort of adverse market reaction. But many of the questions that we have left in terms of the timing, how long will this take, the start date, the end date, the target level on the balance sheet once they're done tapering, all of these questions really can't be answered until the Fed knows exactly, one, when they're going to begin the process, and two, how the market's evolving to this tapering process. Because remember, even the details that we saw this week were a guideline. They were not a hard commitment. So if the market begins to show signs of weakness, they could easily taper the taper uh, going forward. So again, a lot of these pieces are, are moving pieces, and we won't know a firm answer until the Fed initiates this process. Lindsay, hope to talk to you again soon. Great to speak with you as always. That's Lindsay Piegza. She's the chief economist at Stiefel.
David Gura here in New York with uh, someone we found by the salad bar at the Whole Foods on Columbus Circle. Tom King back with us here. Just couldn't stay away. Folks, you go out for four minutes and the world, there's a $14 billion transaction. The retail world changes. A man, a man very familiar with the multi-billion dollar transactions is Robert Profusek. He is with Jones Day, uh, M&A attorney there, of course. Uh, he uh, handled Procter & Gamble's sale of its beauty business and Southern Company's acquisition of AGL Resources. He joins us now on our phone lines. Bob, great to speak with you uh, once again here. We've talked about what this means for Amazon, what this means for Whole Foods. Let's look at the deal itself here, $13.7 billion, uh, including Whole Foods Markets uh, net debt. Give us your reaction to what we're learning this morning from these two companies. Well, it's pretty extraordinary because I can't figure out if this is a retail story, a tech story, a grocery story, or an activist story. Maybe it's just all of the above. Um, It's quite uh, an interesting uh, development. And the market reaction, especially to the other grocery store retailers, is is pretty dramatic. But um, I, I, it's, I think we ought to like take a deep breath and say, "Gee, what is this?" Well, Amazon, of course, has been um, moving to the grocery space, both in terms of its, uh, I think it's called Fresh Direct del- Delivery model, and also the Amazon Go concept that you'd uh, walk in, yeah. and you wouldn't have a have to stand in line at the cash register on the way out. So it's not new for them. And, of course, Whole Foods has had some pressure. Yeah. It's had an activist, uh, actually activist for two years. Robert, you're, you're deeply experienced at merging like companies and not like companies. I'm looking at the Bloomberg, at the income statements, and this is Mars and Venus. I got a 25% grower, maybe a 20% grower in Amazon. And with Whole Foods, I got a low single-digit disaster. How do you buy into a company on hope and faith if the revenue growth so mismatches as Amazon and Whole Foods? You know, the grocery business is a tough business. It's a low margin, low growth. I mean, it's going to be there. I mean, people have to eat after all. So no matter what the general economic conditions are, people are going to eat, whether they spend lots of money at the grocery store on an upscale brand or whether they go... Uh, someplace else. In fact, as you know, uh, Whole Foods itself was thinking about a lower uh, price point um, chain. So it's a tough business, and it'll be interesting to see how this fits. Cultural dissimilarity in the merger context can lead to different results, and I'm not predicting that here necessarily, but, you know, the M&A is uh, littered with situations where companies have, uh, with very disparate cultures, where it hadn't worked out so well, but we'll see. Um, uh, I, I, I go back to the point I made earlier. To me, the the, the idea that, that you should be shorting everybody else in the space just because of this deal is, gosh, it just seems to me to be a real right. overreaction. Bob, one more question before you get on to your billable day. I want to know if Janet Yellen just bought Whole Foods. Is the reason this funny money's going on because the chair of the Fed has given you guys negative interest rates, the financial repression that everybody else has means that Mr. Bezos can affect transla- transactions like this? Well, there's no question that uh, the low cost of capital, not just debt, but but equity, too, um, Mm -hmm. is fueling a lot of activity. In fact, but for the uncertainty on tax rates, I think we'd be in an astonishingly active uh, M&A environment, mostly because the overall GDP environment is so tepid. Robert Profusak, we look forward to speaking to you in the coming days on this transaction and many others uh, to come. Bob Profusak with Jones Day uh, this morning.
Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Subscribe and listen to interviews on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or whichever podcast platform you prefer. I'm on Twitter at Tom Keen. David Gura is at David Gura. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio. Brought to you by Bank of America, Merrill Lynch. With virtual reality, virtually everything will change. Discover opportunities in a transforming world. B of slash VR. Merrill Lynch, Pierce, Fenner & Smith, Incorporated.